0: seems like every week now in the media there's uh, awful stories about cultural and racial tensions going on in the world. Um, we've had our own fair share of it in Australia with the uh, the, the, the Sonia Kruger uh, scandal, agreeing with Donald Trump that Muslims should be um, banned from migrating to Australia from so that we can stop terrorism. Uh, Pauline Hanson. Uh, we hear about um, Brexit in, in the UK and the racial and cultural tensions going on there. You hear about American politics and I'm a bit of an American politics junkie um, and I've been following the election quite closely and um, you know, I watched a bit of the Republican um, uh, you know, thing this week and the, and the speeches from all the different people and it's just crazy. Like, it's seriously crazy what people are saying. It's very scary. There are shootings, Uh, there are historical issues going on in all these countries as well that are just continuing. Now, I'm sure that everyone here would be perplexed about these extreme views being um, said out loud. And, uh, and, you know, I'm sure people also have different views, different political views about this stuff, but... Generally, I would say most people that I know, most of my friends, would be appalled um, at the kinds of things that are being said. But the thing is, as Christians uh, in 2016 living in Melbourne, we can all just join in with the outrage, can't we? And sort of say, "Oh, this is cr-, you know outrageous," and and uh, and uh, make our comments on social media and and fit in. And but in a sense, this achieves not too much, does it? It it these obvious outrageous comments on social media and elsewhere, it it just fuels the division in some ways, I think. It doesn't necessarily achieve a lot. It's in the context of this messed up and divided world that the church can actually shine brightly, I I believe. And perhaps the biggest gift that we have as the church is God-inspired love. Um, In a few weeks we'll have a a, a talk from 1 Corinthians 13. That's the main point of that, isn't it? That's the greatest thing that we've got to offer. This is the same love that joins the persons of the Trinity together. It's the same love that motivated God the Father to send his Son, John 3.16, to the world. It's the same love that motivated the Son to go up on the cross. And it's that same love that is living in our hearts by the Holy Spirit And so the talk this morning is actually on Ephesians 2, as we've just had it read out, 1 to 10. Um, And we're going to look at this idea of God's love and our love. And what this has to do also with pastoral care. So it's actually going to get us to a few places. In the previous chapter of Ephesians, chapter 1, just for a bit of context, Paul has prayed that the reader's hearts will be enlightened and transformed by the Holy Spirit so that they'll know God's call on them, so that they'll know what God has installed for them uh, in their inheritance um, in in heaven, so that they will know God's power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. He he really wants them to know that in their hearts and believe it and live it out because this is what will make them uh, a church that's going to transform the world. And then this paragraph in chapter 2, verse 1 to 10 is part of Paul's prayer that the church in Ephesus and the church in the world, the church at Mary Creek Anglican, might know how powerful God's love is, how much he loves us and what that means. I want to reflect on God's love. I want to reflect on how we respond to God's love. And this is going to show us how to respond to this kooky world that we're in at the moment. Okay, first of all, if you want to turn to the passage, um, it's clear in the first few verses, I think the first three verses, that we were dead and God made us alive. It goes on to say in the the verses 4 to 10. We were dead, but God made us alive. We were actually born spiritually dead. Basic to the Christian view of the world is that when we are born, we are physically alive, we look great, but we are spiritually dead. We may look good on the outside, but until God intervenes from a spiritual point of view, we have a separation from God. And it described it in a whole lot of different ways in the passage. It says um, in verse 2 that um, we're under the influence of the devil. Uh, It says that we followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This is all referring to the work of the devil. We were dead. We were under his influence. We were slaves to our own desires as well, it says in verse 3, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. This is what a spiritually dead person looks like, under, under the influence of the devil and a slave to your own desires. And so we're deserving of God's wrath. God's wrath is not like human wrath that just flies around in an out-of-control Donald Trump kind of way. Um, but God's wrath is perfectly just and perfectly measured and righteous. And it's really hard actually to, to appreciate, I think, um, the gospel if you don't realise what you were and what you've become. If you don't realise what God has done in you to bring you from death to life. Now, it's not that as Christians we need to dwell on it too much that we were once dead, but I think it's important to realise just what's happened. That's why we confess our sins at church each week, because we're remembering what we were and what God has done for us through Jesus. A Christian actually is ultimately a person who lives in hope because of God's grace and kindness towards us. And that's where this passage has a, a, a dramatic change In verse 4, we were once dead, now we're alive. Look at verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We were God's enemy, deserving of his wrath. But despite this, he loved us greatly and so he saved us. Um, If God was Donald Trump, he would say, nah, I'm putting up a wall. You out. If he was Pauline Hansen, he would have denied you an entry visa into the kingdom of God. Luckily, he's not. But if God approaches us with open arms. This is the gospel. He is rich, rich in mercy. He saw you under the influence of the devil, he saw you a slave to your sin, and he breathed his Holy Spirit into you and made you come alive so you are a new creation. He raised you up to be with Christ. And and you are now seated with him in the heavenly realms if you are in Christ Jesus. So if you're a Christian, one of the key um, doctrines that you might not have been brought up with in Sunday school if you grew up going to church is this idea of union with Christ. It's one of my favourite doctrines um, of the Christian faith. Um, It's it's this idea that when we we become a Christian, we are joined to Christ. We're joined to him. Um, Now, Catherine Davies, Paul's wife, I said on Tuesday night a great illustration which I'm going to share with you. I said at flag, who who said it as well. She said it's a little bit like she thinks in the way she understands union with Christ. It's like when a baby is born, it's instinctive thing to do is to crawl up on its mother's breast and to find its breast and to just join with the mother because it's already been joined to the mother and it's just continuing that process, drawing the nutrients and drawing life and the, the heart connection and uh, without that, there's a there's a problem. It's, it's, it's actually not a good thing for the baby to be separated from the mother at birth. It um, has consequences. So in the same way, when we're joined with Christ, we have a whole lot of benefits. We draw our nutrients from him. This is where we get our life from. We have died with him. We will rise with him. We receive his spiritual status as righteous. Righteous. Um, Jesus is described in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 as Emmanuel God with us and this notion of God being with us is ultimately fulfilled when we are joined to Christ isn't it we are with Christ I will be your God and you will be my people there's no more time and this is fulfilled more when we're joined to Christ this is what it means to be alive to be joined to Christ And he did this, it says in verse 7. God did this to demonstrate his grace to the whole world. Look at me, God says. Look at what I'm going to do for this dead world. Now the problem with this description of us as spiritually dead or alive is that many Christians look dead. Anglican church is famous for it. Um, You might have seen that that great skit of um, Mr. Bean going to church. You know, when he's, hallelujah, and everyone's just, and the preacher's preaching, and it's like, it's this picture of the dead Anglican church. Church, Christians often look dead. Now, some Christians look alive, don't they? Pentecostals often look alive, and other churches from different cultures. But we, you know, Australian, English, church, often look dead. Doesn't mean we are dead. And you might even feel dead as a Christian. You might even feel bored or apathetic. You might feel tired or you might feel sick. But if you are in Christ, you are alive. And this is a discipline of the Christian life that we need to learn to realise who we really are. The reality of our aliveness. You need to tell yourself, I'm actually alive because I'm with Christ. Despite how you might feel or look But the opposite is also true you might find yourself envious of the life that others have who are not christians i find young adults often do this they they grow up in the church sometimes if if they've grown up in the church as teenagers believing that they have something special that non-christians don't have and they hold on to that but then they get to uni and they explore life and then they see the world around them and they meet other young adults who actually More alive inverted commas than they are. They're more good looking, they're more educated, they've got a better personality, they're more successful, they're more dynamic, and they think, oh, I don't feel like I have that, what they've got. They look more alive than me. And this is a mistake, isn't it? This is not what the passage is talking about when it says, you are alive. This is the discipline of the Christian life, to know the difference between true life and that other kind of life. Jesus is an Oprah. He's not offering you some kind of self actualization He's not offering you the eat, pray, love kind of life. You can be alive in Christ and still suffer from depression. You can be alive in Christ and be monetarily poor. You can be alive in Christ and be physically out of shape. You can be alive in Christ and be unmarried, married, with children, without children, old, young, from any culture. You can be alive in Christ, you can be employed or unemployed. Physical health, intelligence, personality is one form of life, but it's not the kind of life that God has on offer. Without Christ, you are like a beautiful flower that has been cut off from the stem. You look good on the outside, but you are disconnected from the life source. Jesus says in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Or to put it in the language of Ephesians 2, If you do not remain in me, you are dead in your sins and you are deserving of wrath. And if you are alive in Christ, you are a beautiful work of art. You are what Paul says in verse 10, God's handiwork. Just as the Lord God formed a man out of the dust and breathed life into him, Genesis 2 verse 7, just as the Lord breathed into the valley of the dry bones, in Ezekiel 37, bringing the slain to life, just as Jesus called to um, Lazarus out of the tomb and brought him back to life, so too God brings new life by his grace to all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Not because of any work that we have done, this is a gift from God, says in verse 8. This new life is forgiveness of sins, a new kind of righteousness You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Your heart is transformed by the Holy Spirit so that it's geared towards God. You're growing in Christ-like character. You have spiritual gifts to serve God and each other. You can call God Abba, Father. You can pray directly to God. You can call Jesus Lord and Saviour and Brother. You have a new spiritual family. You have eternal life. This is the life that God offers you. Now, if we think about the pastoral life of the congregation, we should start from this basic foundation that says that God brought us from death to life. God graciously loves us, despite who we were. And so the appropriate response is to love others out of this love. It should propel us, drive us forward to love others. People who know they are loved much love others much as well. So the motivation to love each other should not just be because of rules, because God says so, although he does say so, and we should do it because of that reason. The main motivation, I think, is because he already loves us. In fact, our love for others is evidence of God's love for us and our love for God. 1 John 4 verse 19 says, We love because he first loved us, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So this is why pastoral care in our church should happen naturally amongst the congregation because we should just be a whole lot of people, if we are in Christ, who know God loves us and want to love other people too. You should be responding to each other in love. What does this look like? It looks like action and it looks like words. Christian love involves working up a sweat. It, love, it involves sacrificing your leisure time so that you can serve the people of God and people outside the church. Christian love involves giving someone your jacket when they have asked you for your shirt. Christian love involves loving people who you don't even like. Listen to Jesus' famous words in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 43 to 48. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. <coughs> he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Let's take Jesus' words seriously. Think back on the last month of your life. Can you think of any times that you have shown people who love shown people love who are your enemies? Inverted commas. I put inverted commas because most people don't think they've got enemies. Most of my friends, I I always ask, do you have enemies? And they say, I don't really have enemies. But you have people that maybe you don't like or that don't like you. How many times have you shown tangible love to people who persecute you? Perhaps you don't have any people that persecute you either. Or maybe they just don't like you at work. They just push you around at school or whatever. How many times have you loved people that don't even like you? Perhaps you only show love to people in your own cultural circle. Even the New Age hippie pagans do that, says Jesus. Jesus is saying, bring the love of God that he showed you to those really annoying colleagues at work. Those people you just cannot stand. He's saying, bring the love of God to those people who hold political views that you absolutely cannot stand. Maybe they're pro-Pauline Hanson. Show love to those people. Maybe they're homophobic, maybe they're climate change deniers, show love to those people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in The Cost of Discipleship, Judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. Anyone can love people who hold the correct political views. Even the tax collectors do that, says Jesus. Well, to demonstrate what this looks like in practice, I want to show you um, a person who's doing this. I was in The Guardian last week. I posted it on the Facebook page. You'll see the picture of this lady on the front. Guardian UK featured her. I think they were featuring her because I guess they're trying to counter some of the narratives that's going on in the UK at the moment about attitudes towards Muslims and some of the myth, myths are around you know, ha- the attitudes that Muslims have. This is an amazing story to find in The Guardian. Um, this is a story of Christian love. This is the story of a person loving others in the way that God loved, has loved her. And this, this really does reveal a lot. Sally Smith is the vicar of one of those great-named English churches, St Mark's Church in Stoke-on-Trent. It's an old traditional church in a poor area of England um, and it's experiencing genuine revival that is motivated by Christian love. This church used to be filled with a few old faces of dead Anglicans, if you know what I'm saying. Now it is filled with Middle Eastern faces from Syria, Iraq, Bangladesh and Eritrea. These people are converting from Islam to Christianity. The Guardian says the church has changed from being middle class to looking like a refugee processing centre. Let me read you and comment on some, from what this article said. In some cases, she has housed asylum seekers, fed them, clothed them, brought new shoes for their children and looked after their medical needs. That kindness has led many to convert to Christianity. On average, three to four a week. Some do it in secret, others out of a debt of gratitude. There are those seeking spiritual relief after experiencing atrocities. She says, my biggest challenge has been the attitude of some of the people within the church. I have had a lot of opposition, criticism, negative attitudes and trying to undermine the work that we are doing. That's from the white British congregation. I've lots of congregation members because of what has happened at the church. They don't want the hassle and they they don't want the church being messed up. They see the church as having a very definite role and opening the doors to refugees isn't one of them. And she adds, they expected a vicar's role to be looking after the insiders and one of the insults often levelled at me is she cares more about the people outside the church than those inside. Well, this is what I'm meant to be doing. And you're meant to be doing it with me. We should be doing this together. The Guardian says she's defiant, determined, but not naive. And she, she's known as Mother Sally by the refugees. And she concedes that some do convert because they're wanting, or they, if they think it's going to help them with their asylum application. But she says that there are few and far between who are abusing the the church, what, the conversion process for these reasons. Others claim that they've had doors closed on them by mosques who have turned them away in their hour of need, leaving them starving and homeless. At St Mark's they receive a warm welcome. The building is packed to the rafters with donations of everything required to set up a new home and food parcels are handled, handed out twice a week. They're given bus fares if needed and Smith even takes them into her own home if they are homeless. Smith says, it's about being part of a kingdom where there are no border agency officials, where there are no passports necessary, where there are no immigration detention centers, one worldwide family where there are no dividing barriers. On a Saturday afternoon, 15 asylum seekers undergo a mass baptism. Grown men stand alongside two teenagers and a mother with her two young children. They wait patiently in a queue. To the baptismal font to have their heads doused in holy water. All of them are at different stages of seeking asylum to remain in Britain. Abbas Masi from Iran is dressed in a smart construction shirt, a large metal cross hanging from his neck. Masi closes his eyes as Smith makes a cross with the oil of the catechumens across his head. Masi from Tehran has been in the UK for six months. He says he wanted to be a Christian for a number of years and, and had only been a Muslim because he was born into the Islamic faith. He talks of secret Bible study meetings at his home and his pregnant wife being beaten and losing her baby after authorities in the hardline Muslim country became aware of his Christian meanings. Speaking in Farsi via an interpreter, Mazi, who is now estranged from his family due to his conversion, becomes very animated when discussing his faith. The 27-year-old who lives in accommodation provided by the church says, They welcomed me with an open heart at this church. It was not so much about the material help, but about the emotional help that I received. And it has made me feel connected to Jesus. (laughs) This religion is so much more accepting, he says. In Christianity, I feel peace. This is what it means to be brought alive by God. This is what it means for the church to respond to God's love and grace and to love others. It's not just about pastoral care. It's about mission. It's about building God's kingdom. My prayer is that Mary Creek, Wikimedia church that pastorally cares to the point of transforming people's lives. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for Sally Smith and for others around the world who take uh, your love so seriously that they love others and that this is changing lives and building God's kingdom. We pray that as a church we can um, know your love in our hearts, know that we are alive, and respond accordingly. We pray that that love will flow out into the world around us. Amen.